Amen. Well, it's good to see so many visitors with us. Um, if you haven't been with us in recent weeks, we've been walking through Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first Corinthians letter that we have. And uh, we have been dividing this book up along the theme of church challenges, where we've considered five so far, we're in the fifth one, five of six different church challenges that Paul addresses in the first letter to the Corinthians. We've looked at division in chapters 1 through 3, immorality in chapters 5 and 6, marriage in chapter 7, Christian liberty in chapters 8 through 10, and this morning we are on the second part of the fifth challenge, which is worship. A couple of weeks ago, we discussed the role of gender in the church, men and women in the church. That was one of the issues that Paul addressed the, the church about in chapter 11. Then we took a small little break in there and did a, a little mini-sermon series on gender the last several weeks. Now we're jumping back into 1 Corinthians 11 and picking up the theme of worship again. And this is part two, and he deals with a second aspect of their worship in verses 17 through 34, which is the Lord's Supper, the issue of communion, which we as believers take regularly. And Paul has some good instruction for not only the Corinthians, but for us to think about in the way that we approach and take the Lord's Supper as a church. So having addressed the role of men and women in corporate worship, the Apostle Paul takes today's passage and begins to deal with the second problem in their public worship of this first century Corinthian church, which is thoughtless. for the needs of other people in the church. They were approaching the Lord's Supper as though it were some personal enterprise, some sort of personal practice without regard for other people. So the issue at hand is the conduct of the Corinthians at the Lord's Supper. And we'll talk more about the Lord's Supper in detail, but I trust you understand that the Lord's Supper is a celebratory meal that the church takes regularly through the consumption of the bread and the fruit of the vine us to learn from their bad example of how to approach communion where we're eating the Lord's Supper. When we take the Lord's Supper, we need to think about where we're eating the Lord's Supper. Look at what Paul says again in verse 17 to 19. He says in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be. Together and so on. Verse 17, verse 18, verse 20, verse 30. 
It wasn't something they did as individuals in their family homes. but a public celebration of union with Christ and union with each other. So the Lord's Supper, therefore, is not to be detached from the church. And this means that only baptized members of local churches or those who are in pursuit of local church membership should partake. It's a church meal. Now, why is this so significant? Well, evidently, the Corinthians had forgotten that. In part because taking the Lord's Supper together is what creates the local church. I wonder if you've thought about this before. The Lord's something that Scripture teaches. Well, if you'll look back one chapter to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and look at verses 16 and 17, and I want you to notice that the Lord's Supper actually makes a group of Christians one body by taking it together. Look at verse 16 and 17 of chapter 10, where Paul writes, the cup of blessing, talking about the cup of the Lord's Supper, the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Is it not a communion? That's where we get our word communion, participation. The bread that we break, is it not a communion or a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Notice. For we all partake of the one bread. So what is it that makes a church a church? What is it that makes a church one body together? That we take the one bread together. So Paul's central claim in this verse is that we who are many are one body, and he twice supports that claim by referring to our joint participation in the Lord's Supper. Because there is one bread, he says, for all of us share and partake of the one bread. Paul roots the church's unity in its celebration of the Lord's Supper. There is one body because there is one bread, and we are one body because we partake of the one bread. Paul is saying that the Lord's Supper actually makes many one. The Lord's Supper gathers up the we who are many and makes us into one body. In other words, it starts the local church. It constitutes the local church. Paul's point is that in the Lord's Supper, because we all share in fellowship together, in Christ, our unity in Christ creates the unified body of the church. Imagine, for example, I'll give you an illustration, that one Christian goes to a new city, preaches the gospel, and a handful of people all come to Christ around that time. And this new Christian baptizes each of them. Now, how and when will this handful of baptized Christians become a church? Well, I'd suggest the most basic and most essential answer that the Bible gives us is when they celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And it's at that point that they become a church. Remember that celebrating the Lord's Supper expresses our commitment to Christ and our commitment to each other. And so to receive Christ's benefits in the Lord's Supper is to receive Christ's people as brothers and sisters. So in the Lord's Supper, we make a commitment to each other and that takes us across the line between a handful of Christians and a local church. So in the Lord's Supper, we come together as one body. The Corinthians had forgotten where they were practicing the Lord's Supper. In addition to creating the local church, the Lord's Supper also nurtures the local church. 
It strengthens the local church. That is, the Lord's Supper is Christ's appointed mechanism for dealing with ongoing sin in the life of the congregation. I wonder if you thought about that. This is why Paul can't commend the Corinthians for the way they're partaking the Lord's Supper. He would like to be able to say, hey, I want to brag on you for a minute. But he says in the following instructions, I can't commend you because whatever you're doing, it ain't the Lord's Supper. Because far from healing divisions in the body, it was exacerbating them. In fact, Paul says that their gatherings were for the worse rather than for the better. We're supposed to come to church and leave better. The Corinthians were coming to church and leaving worse. Paul could almost say, better you stay at home than come to church in such a way where divisions are fostered and the Lord's Supper is blasphemed. So there are divisions, and the way they take the Lord's Supper is feeding those divisions. And by so doing, it's revealing to the church, according to Paul, who the real Christians are. You see what he says in verse 18? For in the first place, when, the, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you. Why? In order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. What does he mean by that? Well, he's saying... Church divisions and disagreements, although they are regrettable, they do have a positive side because they show who the real Christians are. So when we take the Lord's Supper, let's remember where we're eating. We're eating in the church as the church. Corinthians have forgotten that. Secondly, we ought to think about why we're eating. Why we're eating the Lord's Supper. Look at verses 20 through 22. When you come together, Paul says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Are you to despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Some of Paul's strongest words in the entire letter. Paul cannot call what they are doing, the Lord's Supper, because they are not understanding why they're supposed to come together in the first place. As we saw previously, they were supposed to come together for the better, but they were using the Lord's Supper for different purposes than Jesus intended. Rather than seeing it as an opportunity to foster church unity, they were using it as an opportunity for independent mealtimes. Their eating of the Lord's Supper had nothing to do with the Lord. And it had nothing to do with His people and everything to do with what they felt like eating that day. Their appetites. At the Lord's Supper, where our unity is to be prized, little unity was taking place. Some ate nothing, while others stuffed themselves. The material impoverishment of the poorer believers was thus highlighted, bringing shame on those poorer believers in the congregation. Some background might be helpful here to help us understand the context in which Paul is addressing these words. Let me give you a little bit of background about Corinth. Every Christian worship, or early, early Christian worship, like in the first century here in the city of Corinth, often combined a full meal with the Lord's Supper called a love feast with the worship service included in it. And often these meals were in homes of wealthier church members where the church met for worship because the wealthier members had the bigger houses and could hold the whole church together in that house. 
Yet even the largest homes likely could not fit an entire church in one room if the congregation had, say, more than 30 people or so. So this resulted in members being spread across various rooms during the love feast. And the owner of the home where the feasts were being held would give a place of honor to wealthier believers, leaving the poorer congregants to eat the leftovers in another room if there was any food left. So you can kind of understand what might be happening here, if, especially if you've got a, a big family, like we've got the McGinnis family, or Shanda's family here, with big family, got to have a big space to hold a lot of people for, for a reunion. And that's the same thing that every Sunday would have been for some churches, meeting in a home together and taking the Lord's Supper and having need for space and having to shift people around during the meal and putting some people in different rooms for different purposes. Now, this created a problem because slaves and day laborers who were members in the congregation made up the poorer class in the church and they would likely arrive later than those of a higher class since they had to work longer during the day, and it's possible that at times there was little, if any, food remaining for them to eat when they got there. There was little consideration for how their behavior, that is the behavior of the higher class, was impacting those in the lower classes. And thus it was thoughtlessness that brought about Paul's rebuke to them that their behavior was in fact despising the church. What this means, this is a frightful, frightening thing, isn't it? You can come to church and be despising the church, Paul says to the Corinthians. Just because they like getting together and, and like enjoying meals together doesn't mean they're not despising the church, Paul says. In fact, they're humiliating unbelievers in the name of the Lord's Supper. You can love coming to church and at the same time despise the church. How? When you eat and drink as though you are the center of the universe. When you take the Lord's Supper as though the gathered church was nothing. When you make people feel uncomfortable around you at the Lord's Supper, feel judged by you at the Lord's Supper, feel unwelcomed by you at the Lord's Supper, and feel ashamed for something they should not be ashamed of. When we take communion, brothers and sisters, we need to remember why we are eating. We are eating in such a way that expresses our love for and solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not just a me and Jesus moment. It's an us and Jesus moment. So are you thinking about other church members when you take the Lord's Supper? Are you aware of the haves and the have-nots in our congregation? We can't separate the way we take the Lord's Supper from the way we treat other Christians. First, first John three sixteen to 18 says as much when, he, when John writes... By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Paul knew the Corinthians needed that word, and we need that word as well. Thirdly, we ought to think about what we're eating. We ought to think about what we're eating, not just where and why, but what we're eating. Look at verse 23. Paul's going to tell him what the Lord's Supper actually is now. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, if what the Corinthians were doing was not the Lord's Supper, what is the Lord's Supper? Verses 23 to 26 tell us what the Lord's Supper is. He essentially, Paul does, essentially repeats what Jesus said when he instituted the Lord's Supper in the Gospel accounts. The bread represents Jesus' broken body for our sin. We eat the bread in remembrance of him. The cup represents the blood of Jesus shed to purchase our forgiveness of sin, which is at the heart of the new covenant. In the covenant, Christ bought our forgiveness. He bought our delight in God's law. He bought our personal relationship with God so that we could stand, he could stand over us as a church and say, I'm your God, you're my people. Eat and enjoy. And in so doing, we proclaim Christ's death and we proclaim Christ's resurrection. Now, I can't improve on the words that we often sing during our Lord's Supper services. So I'll quote the lyrics of Behold the Lamb, our communion hymn, here. Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away, slain for us, and we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross. The body of our Savior Jesus Christ, torn for you, eat and remember. The wounds that heal, the death that brings us life, paid the price to make us one. The blood that cleanses every stain of sin shed for you. Drink and remember. He drained death's cup that all may enter in to receive the life of God. As we share in his suffering, we proclaim Christ will come again and will join in the feast of heaven around the table of the king. Brothers and sisters, we must remember what we're doing when we're eating. We are remembering the death of Jesus. We are proclaiming the death of of Jesus to each other and the lost among us. We are anticipating the return of Jesus. We are gathering for that purpose. See, the Lord's Supper is pilgrim food for us as God's people. Like the Passover, it's a meal on the way. The Lord's Supper directs our attention by directing our senses to what Christ has done for us, where he has put us, and where he will take us. And in our journey through this wilderness of this world, Christ himself gives us at, for, at himself to be our heavenly manna. And the Lord's Supper helps sustain us on the way in the wilderness. Week by week, month by month, the Lord's Supper helps sustain us on the way because it signifies him. He bought us. We belong to him in his body and we're headed to glory with him. The Lord's Supper, then, is an appetizer. Every time we take it, it's an appetizer for the feast that will commence on the day when Christ reunites heaven and earth. So consider what God promises to us in the future, brothers and sisters, in Isaiah 25, 6-8. On the mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Oh, I can't wait for this. Can you? And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people will be taken away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. That's what we do when we take the Lord's Supper. Reproach will one day be gone. Death will one day be swallowed up. It will not always be this way. 
On that day, tears and shame are gone forever. On that day, the smothering, strangling sheet of death that now suffocates all of us will not just be lifted, but consumed and eradicated out of the earth. On that day, death won't just be deferred or deflected. It will be devoured. And if all these miseries that we currently live in will not one day be removed, the Lord's Supper says, they will be. Just wait. A day is coming when all the miseries will be removed and what will take place? What will replace them? A feast. A feast of the best. A feast for people from all peoples. A feast forever. And in taking the Lord's Supper, we look forward to that feast. Fourthly, we ought to think about how we're eating. We ought to think about how we're eating. Look at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Fearful words. What do they mean? Well, in light of this, how are we to eat then? Well, Paul tells us that in order to not eat the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, we must do so in a worthy manner, which means we do so with self-examination. He says, let a person examine himself. So what does eating in an unworthy manner refer, refer to? Well, it would be without self-examination. The context that we've just seen would say it means that we fail to appreciate what the bread and the cup signify, that Christ loved the church and died for her, and then, secondly, it means we fail to feel any remorse that our attitudes and actions are inconsistent with the love of Christ. And thirdly, we fail to renounce those attitudes and actions and turn back to Christ and a path of love. And fourthly, we fail to trust Jesus for forgiveness and the power to walk in that love. So let's put it positively. What would do, examining ourselves and taking in a worthy manner be? Well, do you see and savor what the bread and the cup symbolize? That Christ loved you and gave himself for you and not just for you, but for the church? Do you feel bad that your attitudes and actions are inconsistent with the love of Christ for his church and for the poor in particular? Do you reject those attitudes and actions and turn from them in the path of love and say, I will not treat my brothers and sisters as something cheap. I will love the church and cherish the blood-bought people of God. I will not humiliate the poor. I will love the poor, and I will serve the poor. Fourthly, do you trust Jesus for the forgiveness of these bad attitudes and actions and for the will and power to walk out that life of love? See, we're called to think about our daily practices and life patterns, especially as it relates to love for the church when we come to the Lord's Supper. That's what Paul means, I think, when he says we must discern the body. Now, the body here, the body he's been talking about is kind of twofold, right? He talks about the body of Christ, which is broken for us, and he talks about the body of the church. So which is it? Is he saying, discern the body of Jesus and think about his death more accurately in light of what the Lord's Supper is? Or think about the church and what it is? Well, obviously it's both. He's woven both in here. But I think the primary emphasis is on the church, he says in verse 18, there are divisions among you. You're coming together for the worse, not for the better. 
Each one goes ahead and doesn't consider the others. Discern the body. Think about the body. Think about the church. Thus, discerning the body would include asking questions about our relationships when we come to the Lord's Supper. Are they strong with my brothers and sisters? Am I seeking to heal sinful divisions in the body? Am I seeking to live at peace with others, be reconciled to others as far as it depends on me? Is my speech and my conduct in the church building the body up, or am I having lots of private conversations about members of the body that everyone but the person hearing them benefits from? Am I seeking to be an encouragement to others? Brothers and sisters, all grudges and bitterness and personal offense must die before the bread and the cup touch your lips. Do you take it that seriously? Have, do grudges die at the Lord's Supper for you? Does bitterness die at the Lord's Supper for you? Does unreconciled relationships die at the Lord's Supper to you? Do personal offenses die at the Lord's Supper for you? If not, don't take the Lord's Supper until they do. Because you're taking the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. When you come and you take his, the bread and the cup, Jesus holding your offenses against you? Or is he forgiving you? Is Jesus holding your sins against you? Or forgiving you your sins? Then, brothers and sisters, how can we do that with each other? What more unworthy thing could we do at the Lord's Supper than go in with unforgiven sin against people? Say, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you've forgiven my sins, and meanwhile, I keep a record of wrongs of a hundred ways other people have sinned against me. Thank you that you forgive me, though. He has not forgiven you. Because Matthew 7 says, if you forgive other people their sins, your Father in heaven will forgive people your sins. But if you hold a record of wrongs against people, don't be surprised that on the day of judgment that God doesn't have a record of wrongs held against you too, that you thought were forgiven all along. If we fail to do so, not only is such behavior incompatible with the Lord's Supper and the gospel, but it also, according to Paul here, puts us at risk for temporal judgment in this life. This is where it gets serious, and this is where I want you to lean in and really listen. The rest of this chapter is Paul's warning about the kinds of things that happen to professing Christians who lapse into a season of lovelessness. Look at verse 29, sobering words. If we fail to eat the cup of the Lord in a worthy manner, if we fail to examine ourselves... Now, I want to say a word about this. Paul doesn't want us to be scared of the Lord's Supper. Paul doesn't want us to be like, oh, goodness, I'm getting, Pastor Mark's getting ready to talk about all these temporal judgments that Paul's going to lay out. I better not take the Lord's Supper then. That's not what he's saying. Look, he's, look in verse 28, he says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread. He wants you at the table. He wants you eating the bread. He wants you drinking the cup but he wants you to do it in an examined way. He's not saying, well, I don't want to examine myself, so I better not take the Lord's Supper. No, he's saying examine yourself and then take the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper is meant to be a quality control mechanism in the life of the congregation. It's most to snuff out sin at the weed stage before it becomes full-grown trees. It's supposed to kill, kill that and, and not fertilize the flesh. So look at verse 29 then. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. 
The apostle tells us that if we eat and drink in an unworthy manner, we will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That is, if we do not live out the reconciling purposes of the cross, we have misunderstood the atonement. And if we have misunderstood the atonement, we have not seen our need for it. So in that respect, we are like those who put Jesus to death. For those men did not see their need for our Lord's atoning death. So to eat in an unworthy manner entails not understanding the purpose for which Christ died and not pursuing unity and reconciliation in the church. So the apostle tells us that this judgment can take the form of sickness and death. See, this had not been happening in Corinth. That is, they were not eating with self-examination. And so members of the church were beginning to get ill. They were beginning to get sick. Some of them were dying. And that is told, we're told that that is the judgment of God on their sin. But wait, I thought you said Christ forgave our sins. I thought Christ absorbed all our judgment. He did. And that's why Paul makes it clear in verse 32, the reason that we're disciplined. We are not disciplined so that we can be condemned. We're not being condemned, but we are being disciplined. You have categories for that, brothers and sisters? Our sin, though forgiven, does have consequences. It does have consequences. These people are forgiven. They're taking the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, and God's killing some of them. God's making some of them sick. Do we have categories for that? Now, to be clear, for sensitive consciences in our room, just because you get sick doesn't mean you're taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, okay? That's not what we're saying here. Not all forms of sickness are related to the Lord's Supper. We know that from the Bible. This is a very specific application to a very specific problem. But it is good to ask those questions from time to time, especially if we find ourselves ill, gravely ill sometimes. Could it be? that the way we practice the Lord's Supper for years, for decades, has not been well examined? Could it be? It's worth asking. But this was a call for the Corinthians to a right and worthy celebration of the Lord's Supper so that they would persevere in faith until the end. This indicates that while believers do not experience the eternal death in hell, it is possible for Christians, before we die, to experience the Lord's discipline. And such discipline reflects God's kindness and fatherhood for loving fathers discipline their children. And God disciplines us for our holiness that we may share in his presence. That's what Hebrews 12, 3-11 teaches, right? His discipline alerts us of our need to repent and to remain faithful. So let's not be deceived, brothers and sisters. The same could happen to us if we persistently eat the bread and drink the wine or the juice without recognizing our sin and the purpose of the atonement, and by failing to live out that knowledge, by pursuing reconciliation and unity in the church. Avoiding judgment with respect to the Lord's Supper is really easy in one sense. All we have to do is properly evaluate ourselves before we take. We confess our sins. We acknowledge our sin. And we ask for grace to repent and to walk with Christ again. To come to the table as sinners is not in and of itself to eat in a worthy manner, in an unworthy manner, because the Lord's Supper is for sinners. In fact, if you don't take it, think of yourself as a sinner, the Supper isn't for you. The Supper is a sinner's Supper, but it's not a Supper for every kind of sinner. 
It's a supper for repenting sinners. And if you won't repent, you shouldn't take. The only kind of sinners that are welcome to the table are repenting sinners. And when you stop repenting, you stop taking. That's what church discipline is. People who have stopped repenting, they're no longer allowed to continue taking with us. That's all church discipline is. We're not saying they're perfect. We're saying they stopped repenting. They stopped turning from sin. It's so the Lord suffers for people who recognize their sin, who humbly ask God for forgiveness for their sin, who come to the Father through Christ knowing they've been accepted by him and seek to live in unity with their brothers and sisters, knowing that what unifies us in Christ is our common status as sinners and our common need for a Savior. Fifthly and finally, we ought to think about when we're eating. When we're eating. Look at verse 33 and 34, the concluding verses of the chapter. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. There's the when. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So when are we to eat the Lord's Supper? With one another. Paul gives specific advice on how to restore unity around the Lord's Supper. The Greek verb that's translated wait refers to more than just delaying the start of something. He's not just saying, hey, wait until everybody gets there, although he is saying that, but he's saying more than that. It's a connotation of receiving and sharing with someone. Wait for one another. In other words, Paul tells them to give one another a warm welcome when they come to the Lord's table to commune with Jesus and with each other. When should you take the Lord's Supper? When, when, when the church is gathered, everyone is ready, and they've received the welcome from Christ and from you. When you're taking the Lord's Supper, what do the people around you see you, see in you, and experience from you? Do they experience your warm embrace? Do they experience your smile for them as a fellow church member? Your gladness that they are at the table with you? They should. And when we take, should we not take together? That's what Paul is instructing them to do, to wait for one another. So that's why, in one reason, we take the bread and take the cup together. We're waiting for one another to receive it because we're saying, Jesus is as important to me as you are important to me. I love Jesus and I love you as my brothers and sisters. I'm going to wait for you because this isn't about just me and Jesus. This is about us and Jesus. So the gospel doesn't obliterate all distinctions in the congregation entirely, as we see here in 1 Corinthians 11, but they have no place for separating people in the church. For what we are all equal at the foot of the cross. Rich and poor alike have the same standing before God through Christ. They're all rich. So we must embrace one another fully in the worship and fellowship of the church. Paul goes on to say that if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home seems to be a direct aim specifically at the wealthier believers who were using the worship of the church as an excuse to eat a lavish meal that was not shared with those who were in a lower social class. And he said, you guys do that on your own time. Eat at home if you're hungry. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is not to have your appetite satisfied. It's to unify and bless the congregation and to worship Jesus Christ. So the apostles' admonition is for wealthier Christians not to bring such practices into the church but rather to eat the same food as the poor Christians eat. 
It's a call for those of the higher social class to humble themselves and show their unity with others by eating the same food at the same time, showing solidarity with the church of Christ. All right, in conclusion, we've discussed where we should eat, why we should eat, why, what we should eat, how we should eat, and when we should eat. What's left? Who? Who? So in conclusion, let's remember who. It is the Lord's Supper. The Lord sets the terms for the supper. You have your supper, I have my supper, the Lord has his supper. So if you're here this morning, would you be allowed to take the Lord's Supper? Well, you can if the Lord certifies it. How does the Lord certify someone to take his supper? You have to belong to the Lord. It's the Lord's Supper, and you have to be the Lord's people. Say, I am the Lord's people. I was born. No, you're not the Lord's people if you're born. You're the Lord's people if you're born again. What does it mean to be born again? It means that you have recognized all that the Lord's Supper symbolizes for yourself. It's not just sin out there. It's sin in here. It's not just sinners around me. I'm one of them. It's not just those people that nailed Jesus to the cross. I did. It's not just for them he had to die. It's for me he had to die. And he was willing to die. And he loved me and gave himself for me. And you have recognized that and you have turned from your sin, the things that nailed him to the cross. And you are continuing to turn from the sins that nailed him to the cross. And you are seeking to follow him in obedience. And you've expressed that obedience the very first way he told you to express it, in baptism. Make disciples, baptizing them, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Well, one of the things we are to observe is the Lord's Supper. And that's on the other side of baptism. And where, to we, where are we to teach people how to observe all that Christ commanded? Well, the book of Acts says in the local church. So that is, the Lord's Supper means if you, have rec- you can take the Lord's Supper if you have recognized your sin and the need, your need for Christ, you have turned from your sin and trusted in Him as your only Savior, you have been baptized in as an expression of your faith, and you are joined to a local body and membership. And you can take the Lord's Supper because you are visibly one of the Lord's people. So it's, it's a meal for visible saints, for those who are not hiding in the weeds of life, claiming Christianity when it's to their advantage, which is becoming less of a possibility, but claiming Christ as their all in all and pledging their allegiance to him and to his people. And you may take the Lord's Supper. I pray that some who are in this room right now would be able to join with us soon. We'll take again next week because they too have recognized, I need the Lord and I need his supper, and all that it signifies. So in conclusion, when we come to the Lord's Supper, let's do so thoughtfully, and we'll do so thoughtfully by looking in six directions. I try to remind us of these things pretty regularly. I'll just read them off, and then I'll close in prayer. Number one, look backward. Remember what Jesus did on the cross for you and exult in what he accomplished. Two, look up. Thank God for the fact that Christ's work has united you with God. Three, look around. Celebrate the fact that you're not only in union with Christ, but union with his people in this local church. Fourthly, look inward. Examine whether you have sinful relational tensions with a fellow church member. Fifth, look outward. 
proclaim the gospel to unbelievers who are present, including our children watching at and around the table. And then sixthly, look forward, anticipate the return of Jesus, where we'll put away all the small Lord's Supper sessions that we have and join the great marriage feast of the Lamb. And the Lord said that he will take his own supper with us anew, with us for the first time post-resurrection in our Father's kingdom. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you uh, for practical instruction on practical things like the Lord's Supper. Lord, we take it so often and it's so easy to slip into routine regarding things that are repeated. We sing often, we pray often, we preach often, we read often, we fellowship often. Lord, all these things are valuable. And we thank you for every single opportunity we have to remember Christ. Lord, some of us need to recognize our great sin in never coming to the table. We are members of this congregation who have pledged ourselves to be in covenant with our members, and we are not present at the covenant meal. How can we think we're in the covenant if we regularly forsake the meal that symbolizes it? God, have mercy on us. Incline our hearts. It's more important than just about anything because it's all about Jesus, the one we will live with forever, and it's all about the church, the people we will live with forever. Netflix can wait. Dinner can wait. Christ calls us. Remember me. Do this in remembrance of me. What a privilege we have to remember you. And Lord, for those of us who regularly gather and make it a habit, Lord, may it not just be a habit. May it be something that we are intentionally thoughtful about and more and more until the day that we no longer need to eat it again because we will be with the Lord. We will be in his presence forever and ever. We pray these things in Jesus' name.